Talk to my friend Drew Allen. And I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. One of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As diehard conservative. I'm to this guy for wisdom. I just want to open and have a little heart-to-heart with you, my friends. Are you all tired? I mean, I've been tired for a while. I'm not going negative with this, by the way. Don't mistake what I'm saying. I just... I want to make a point here that... I mean, every day, there is some new, new battle the left is waging against you and me, against America. I mean, they cannot... You know, we conservatives... We want peace. We've always wanted peace. We just want unity in this country. We want constitutionality. We want the government to do their job. And yet the left cannot have it. They must conquer us. They must ram their agenda down the throats of every American and this citizen. They aren't content to teach their own kids their Marxist garbage and lies. They're not content to to corrupt their own children. No, they want to come for our kids with critical race theory, with BLM, with everything. And the media, you can't even turn on the media. Folks, if you, if you want peace of mind, I mean, things are still happening out there in the world, certainly. It doesn't stop what's happening, what the left is doing. But if you want peace of mind, I, I highly recommend just, just divorcing yourself from any news channel for at least 24 hours. Longer would be better. And really, you don't even need the news. You can just listen to me. I'll tell you what you need to hear, what's important out there and what's going on. But I got to tell you, I am so fed up with this Democratic Party. I mean, these people are are possessed by some demonic spirit, I swear. I mean, that someone with this totalitarian mentality wakes up and they demand that we agree with them. Not only that we demand that they demand we agree with them, but they demand that what they want for their own lives and for the nation, well, it has to be the law of the land. And this is why, of course, in the founding we had 50 states, but of course states haven't enjoyed sovereignty for a long time. The federal government rules everything. The Democratic Party wants to affect election laws in all 50 states. And now with this new passage of this... um, this anti-abortion, they're calling it, bill in Texas. Well, now they're having conversations about how they want to standardize abortion practices across all 50 states. It's not enough for them to own California, Los Angeles, San Francisco. It's not enough for them to own these blue cities. No, they want to come and they want to wreck the suburbs. They want to force us to live In this Marxist state, I I just, these people are sick. They're sick. You know, if they want to keep L.A., for example, one example, or San Francisco and continue to ruin it, fine. But not only do they flee these cities like locusts and not understand that they're bringing those policies with them when they vote for the same things that have destroyed the places they're fleeing, which is just, 
I mean, to use the term, beyond the pale, time and time again, how these ignorant Democrats do this and behave and operate this way, they're so destructive. And so now they're up in arms. They're apoplectic about this new law passed in Texas. And we're going to get into it. I want to make you the most informed audience in this country about this issue. What took place, what it means, the pros, the cons, all of it. But in short, the reason they're reacting this way, the reason they're, they're losing their minds and reverting again to this absurd hyperbole, comparing, you know, Texas to the Taliban. Now, these people aren't right in the head. These people are emotionally ill, mentally ill. But the reason they're reacting that way is because they've just lost something. The reason they're reacting this way is because in a very, very rare example, by the way, the Republicans in Texas have successfully, tactically outmaneuvered the left. And that's what's driving them so insane. It's not even just the fact that they're all in for murdering babies at anyone's convenience. But more More importantly, I think the thing that contributes to their anger and hatred right now is the fact that they lost and they can't stand to lose. They're used to winning. They're used to getting their way like little crybabies. And now they're acting out and having a tantrum because, well, Texas outmaneuvered them. And before I get into that particular bill and why it's brilliant, it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree. It is a genius, genius Bill. Well, you know, since Roe v. Wade's, the Roe v. Wade decision, I should say, that came down from the Supreme Court on January 22nd, 1973, well, since that moment, the left has enjoyed victory for abortion. And Whether you're pro-abortion or anti-abortion, that decision was not constitutional. Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruled that a state law that banned abortions except to save the life of the mother was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. The Equal Protection Clause. They act as if abortion is a constitutional right. It's nowhere to be found in the Constitution. They just made it up. And for context, the Supreme Court often makes unconstitutional rulings and mistakes. Plessy v. Ferguson. Of course, everyone knows Dred Scott, right? Dred Scott. In that case, well, they ruled that blacks, well, essentially they weren't Americans. They weren't citizens. So they make unconstitutional rulings all the time, and it establishes precedent. doesn't make it right, doesn't make it constitutional. But the irony of Roe v. Wade to me, by the way, so Roe, that was just a, uh, a name that was made up to give this individual anonymity. But the, the, the woman's name who brought the case, her name was Norma L. McCorvey. Now, she discovered she was pregnant in June of 1969. This was going to be her third child, 
So she'd had some practice. She understood how the process worked. And then it led to pregnancy. And she'd already had two children, given birth to them. But McCorvey, that third child, was just too much for her. So she wanted to have an abortion. But at the time, Texas law only allowed for abortion in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. So McCorvey's friends, they told her she should tell everyone that she'd been raped, but she didn't have a police report, so that was not going to be viable in court. And then she went actually to have an illegal abortion, but she discovered that the authorities had shut down the facility. And so McCorvey found, McCorvey, Norma McCorvey, she found an attorney. And they started to begin the process of putting her child up for adoption. But this attorney also referred her to a couple of recent graduates of the University of Texas Law School, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington. Now, Coffey and Weddington, they brought the lawsuit on Norma McCorvey's behalf. And this is where she picked up the alias Jane Rowe throughout the case to hide her identity. So they claimed that the state's law violated Roe's constitutional rights. They said that Roe had a right to obtain an abortion in a safe medical environment within her home state. And the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas agreed. They ruled that the Texas law violated Roe's right to privacy found in the Ninth Amendment, and was therefore unconstitutional. That's bogus, by the way. A weak case, but activist judges ruled in favor. So Texas then appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, and the case reached the court in 1970. Now remember, June 1969, she's found out, she discovers she's pregnant with her first child. So what's ironic about this, even before we get to the, the famous, infamous Supreme Court decision, by the time the Supreme Court even ruled that abortion was legal, she'd already given birth to her child, and that child was actually put up and adopted. <laughs> Regardless. Such irony. Well, arguments in the case began on December 13th, 1971. And the court issued a 7-2 decision on January 22nd, 1973. So it's a lot of time here to decide this. But the court, the Supreme Court, determined that Texas had violated Roe's constitutional right to privacy. Now, these people were nuts. They, they, they bent themselves into pretzels trying to come up with some nonsense to look for something that wasn't there, which would be constitutionality. So they drew on the First, the Fourth, the Ninth, the Fourteenth Amendments, saying that the Constitution protects an individual's, they called them zones of privacy. What does that mean, zones of privacy? They made it up. So they of course, cited earlier cases like contraception, marriage, child-rearing. They said those were activities included in these zones of privacy. And so they just determined, made up, that this zone 
was also broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. So they determined that these abortions were within a woman's zone of privacy, and so therefore, ruling that a woman had a fundamental right to the procedure, well, that's what they determined. And so, they went well beyond this, by the way. They determined a trimester situation, when you could abort, when you couldn't abort. They're the ones who said that during the first trimester, the abortion decision was left to the woman and her doctor. Following the first trimester, trimester until fetal viability, that's what we arbitrarily determine as when the fetus is viable, when it's a person. Well, then the state can regulate the procedure, but only if it reasonably relates to the preservation and protection of maternal health. Notice how backwards this argument is to begin with. There's no conversation about the child's health and well-being, the unborn child's. It's all about the mother's health and well-being. Now, it's not even about physical. It can be emotional health. It can be anything else. But anyway, this is the decision they make. And we're going to get deep into this because I want you to understand what's going on here, why we're where we are today, and when this fight began and why it's important. Now, look, a lot of people perceive Roe well, conservatives, pro-lifers, well, it represents that decision of the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, this tragic failure of the government, an abdication of the duty to defend the vulnerable and the innocent. And so for us who are pro-life, I mean, nothing is more important than the sanctity of life, equal dignity of all, right? Impartial justice. But Roe v. Wade said essentially that a child, unborn child has no rights. And it's, it's, it was really an earth-shattering... I mean, now we're kind of used to this kind of unconstitutionality, but back then, the law of the land had been that abortions were unlawful. There was respect for sanctity of life. And seven unelected judges on the Supreme Court, in this case, they could overturn the will of the people expressed in the laws of 50 states. And here we are today. But other Americans, the pro-abortion advocates, well, they look at this as settled law. Settled law because the seven elect unelected judges, appointed judges on the Supreme Court, determined and made this decision. It's the end of, this, end of the discussion for them, right? They say abortion's a constitutional right. Well, it's not a constitutional right. The Supreme Court, these seven people, just decided it was a constitutional right, but that doesn't make it constitutional any more than it did to have slavery in this country. But, oh, well, it's settled. It's settled. There's slavery. No, no, it's not settled. And so, you know, now women believe that they have a basic human right to make their own childbearing choices, right? Your body, your choice, unless, of course, we talk about vaccines and other things. But in this particular issue, it's your body, your choice. And, and, and you know, this, this, it's become a cult, to be honest. There can be no rational discussion about this and about the, the, the infant's life. And furthermore, all 50 states, you know, we all have to abide by this unconstitutionality now. 
And so anyway, we're going to get back into this uh, uh, Roe v. Wade discussion. And I'm going to point out some, some very clear reasons that it is not constitutional, that it is, in fact, an unconstitutional ruling. And then I'm going to get into what Texas did. Because what Texas did, other states have been trying to do for many, many, many years. Um, but they haven't been successful because the liberal Democrats have understood and learned to use the court system the way the modern judicial system in America, well, views itself, is perceived to have power, which it doesn't have, but they perceive it to be this powerful agent, and they can always just run to a district court or some other court and just get a stay. So you pass a bill through the legislature, and the left knows they can just find a friendly judge to just not enforce it. And so the legislative branches in states, Congress, everywhere else, they don't have any authority. The ultimate authority goes to these judges. That's also not constitutional, even though that's the common view of the court system. But this is Drew Allen, and we'll be right back. Now, there are numerous, numerous clear arguments that make it indisputable that Roe v. Wade was not constitutional. It didn't have legal foundation. The right to have an abortion is not a constitutional right. It doesn't exist in our Constitution. And in fact, there's a gentleman named Edward Lazarus. Now, it's relevant because he was a former law clerk to Roe's author, who was Justice Harry Blackman on the Supreme Court. Well, he wrote that as a matter of constitutional interpretation and judicial method, Roe borders on the indefensible. He says, I say this as someone utterly committed to the right to choose, as someone who believes such a right has grounding elsewhere in the Constitution instead of where Roe placed it, and as someone who loved Roe's author like a grandfather. So, I mean, he's trying to go, I don't know where he's looking to, to say where it's found in the Constitution, but he's admitting that the argument that was made, it didn't have grounding in the Constitution. But, you know, his point is that the way the court, the way Justice Blackman and these others on the Supreme Court found constitutionality for it, well, they, they, they believe that it was a privacy right. And he's saying, well, there, there's no meaningful foundation in constitutional text, history, or precedent for this. And so Justice Blackman's opinion, the majority opinion, in favor of this new constitutional right, well, it it doesn't provide any reasoning in support of its holding. And no one's produced a convincing defense of Roe on its own terms. I mean, for one, the, 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 the court does not have the ability under our legal system established by our Constitution. They don't have the power to make laws. That's left to Congress and state legislatures. It's not the role of the Supreme Court to substitute their policy preferences of seven people on the Supreme Court for those expressed in laws enacted by the people's elected representatives. 
The Supreme Court has no authority to intervene with these legislatures and make law themselves. Their role is constitutional review. Their role is to determine if the law being challenged infringes on a constitutionally protected right. Not to make law. And in terms of where this Supreme Court, who fashioned this new constitutional right in Roe v. Wade, well, they used the privacy right, for example. There's no foundation in the text or history of the Constitution to find abortion associated with a, a woman's privacy. I mean, Roe v. Wade says a pregnant woman's constitutional right of privacy to decide whether or not to abort her child, they, they find this either in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty or in the 9th Amendment's reservation of rights to the people. They don't even make, for example, in Roe v. Wade, an effort to examine the intent of the drafters about what those amendments actually meant, why they were there, what they were actually protecting. And they didn't do this because it didn't exist. It wasn't there. I mean, the 14th Amendment was not intended to create new rights, only to secure the rights of all persons, notably the freed slaves. That's why it existed, to make it so that black Americans were considered citizens and that they got their rights, their descendants. The rights and liberties already guaranteed by the Constitution, but were not given to black Americans on unconstitutional ground. Well, the 14th Amendment was intended to make that clear. No future Supreme Courts and so on and so forth could look at the Constitution and say, well, it, you know, it, it says, um, uh, it, clearly it means that blacks don't have rights. So they say, okay, fine, fine. That's not true, but we're going to add an amendment, the 14th Amendment, that's going to say clearly that freed slaves and their descendants, they also get the rights and liberties that were already guaranteed to them by the Constitution. That's not about abortion. It has nothing to do with abortion. And so they, they bent themselves in pretzels talking about the Fourth Amendment, the right of people to be secure in their houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. There's no connection between that and the right to abortion, there's no logical connection that exists. Securing their houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, that's about having some government entity, the military, and so on and so forth, coming into your home, violating your right to privacy. That's not about abortion. Everywhere you look in the decision of Roe v. Wade, there's no constitutional, constitutionality to be found. And when they associate it, for example, saying, oh, it's in the spheres of privacy, you know, like childbearing. Well, how ironic, because child rearing, child, child rearing as a sphere of personal space or privacy, well, abortion is child destruction. A woman's right to abort actually nullifies the right to procre procreate, which is upheld in Skinner, which was another ruling. And so the fear of government intruding into your bedroom, a marital bedroom, personal space, by searching for evidence of contraceptive use, well, that's what drove the Griswold court to find this privacy right for couples to use contraception 
in their own private spaces. But abortion and contraceptives, in both purpose and effect, they're, I mean, they couldn't, they're light years apart in terms of privacy. Abortions don't take place in these sacred spheres of marital bedrooms. Nor does preventing them require investigation of your private sexual behavior. No, it's, it's about the consequence afterward. And they involve other personnel, by the way, because it takes two to tango. You could apply a privacy right that encompasses abortion to virtually any conduct performed outside the public view. Child abuse, pornography, drugs. You know, being protected from state regulation... It, it has nothing to do with Roe. And of course, adoption, you know, people argue who want abortion, right? They say, well, we want, don't want unwanted children. There's hardship. We don't have the money for them. I'm not in a place in my life. Well, you can, you can put them up for adoption. Adoption would eliminate all the hardships of raising unwanted children by non-lethal means. Which, of course, the irony again, that's exactly what Jane Roe and Roe v. Wade did. The child didn't even get aborted. And, of course, that's when the language began to be massaged, to turn us callous to the unborn by calling them a potential life instead of an actual life. And so anyway, there was no legal ground for this law to begin with. Most scholars agreed. Now they just make up and say, oh, no, it's constitutional. And even if they don't say it constitu was made on constitutional grounds, they say, well, it's precedent. Stare decisis, right? It's settled law, and now it's the precedent, and so we can never do anything to upend it. That's not true. So anyway, I'm going to take one more short break. We're going to come back, and I'm going to talk to you about what the brilliance of this Texas law is and why the left is losing their freaking mind. Now, what makes Texas's law so unique? Why does it have teeth? Why is it successful? Why is the left in an outrage? <clears throat> okay, here we go. I want to go back to uh, 2019. I believe it was around May. Now, Georgia passed what was labeled a controversial law banning most abortions after six weeks. You know, that's what we call... Uh, what, what do we say? This is the, the heartbeat, the heartbeat ban, right? When a doctor can de detect a heartbeat in the unborn, which is usually around six weeks, that's when they're putting the ban in effect. So this is what Texas has successfully passed, and which has 
Planned Parenthood clinics suddenly abiding by it and canceling abortions and stating that they won't take abortions after six weeks. Six weeks. This has never been successful before. Well, when Georgia passed the same law, a federal judge, of course, struck down Georgia's controversial law, ruling that it violates the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So they're using Roe v. Wade every time to block and prevent any state legislatures from passing anything that would create an impediment to abortions. And so these federal judges do this every time. Well, the Texas law likewise prohibits abortions once medical professionals can detect cardiac activity, usually around six weeks. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Typically, when these laws are written, there is established precedent that a plaintiff, whether it's Planned Parenthood or another uh, pro-abortion advocacy group, well, they can sue the state official charged with enforcing a state law so they can block enforcement of that law. But here's the brilliance of the Texas law. The Texas law... It, it doesn't require, and in fact, it says that government authorities can't enforce this law. The law actually gives citizens the right to file civil suits and collect damages against anyone aiding an abortion. And so, because the state is not responsible for the enforcement, well, they've gotten rid of the tried-and-true tactic of the left, which is to sue a state official and have a court, a federal district judge, or whoever it is, put a stay on it and say it's unconstitutional. So that law and statute's on the books, but it's not being enforced because of a judge. Well, now they can't sue anybody. In fact, they're the ones that are going to be sued by individuals who now have the ability to sue anyone who is they find is getting an abortion at six weeks or after. Anyone who assists them in it, the doctors, the practitioners, anyone. And here's the kicker too. These, these individuals who will be on the defense, like a Planned Parenthood, for example, well, they're going to have to foot their own legal bills now. They're going to have to hire a fleet of lawyers. They're going to go bankrupt if they continue this practice because they will be sued into oblivion if they continue their practice of six weeks or after going forward with these abortion procedures. And so that's the checkmate. That's what has these liberals actually complying and has them losing their minds. <clears throat> but there's some brilliant history to this as well. All of this stems from the brilliant mind of a lawyer named Jonathan F. Mitchell. Now, all those things we're talking about with Roe v. Wade, precedent, judges acting as if they have veto power over legislation. Well, this is what he says is a great misinterpretation and misconstruence of the role of courts. His argument essentially, and it's a long piece and I'll link to it, 
if you want to have a, a, a deep dive here, but I'm going to give you the bullet points that matter. Well, look, when a court declares a state, a statute unconstitutional or enjoins its enforcement, right? Enjoining its enforcement, making sure that it can't be enforced. Well, this disapproved law by the court, well, it's described as having been struck down or rendered void. So it's as if the judiciary holds this veto-like power to cancel or revoke a duly enacted statute. And then, of course, the political branches carry on as if the court's decision has erased the statute from the law books. And this is what Jonathan Mitchell calls the writ of erasure fallacy. That statute's on the books. Only an act of Congress can change the law. Only an act of the legislature can change the law. And so... When judges and elected officials, when they mistakenly assume that a court decision has canceled or revoked a duly enacted statute, this is how they commit what he calls the writ of erasure fallacy, the fallacy that equates judicial review, right, interpreting laws and their legality based on the constitutionality of them. Well, they equate that with a veto-like power to strike down legislation or delay its effective start date. And this is the belief that's been widely held throughout our legal and political culture. But it's inaccurate. The federal courts do not have authority to erase a duly enacted law from the statute books. And they have no power to veto or suspend a statute either. The power of judicial review is actually, constitutionally, more limited. Now, they can, the court can decline to enforce a statute in a particular case of controversy. Controversy. It permits a court to enjoin executive officials, stop them from taking steps to enforce a statute, just like they've done time and time again with these uh, heartbeat bans and things like that in all these uh, states, but only while the court's injunction remains in effect. That statute still exists. That law is on the books, even after a court says it violates the Constitution, and it remains a law until it's repealed by the legislature that enacted it. And so Texas's brilliant success in crafting this bill, which comes from the brilliant mind, of course, of Mitchell, well, they're using private enforcement. That's what he calls it, private enforcement. Uh, <clears throat> and that's, of course, what we're talking about with private, private citizens being able to sue these individuals. And so Planned Parenthood can't go and put a stay on it across the state because it's coming from the American people, the citizens. And the origin story of this is very interesting. You know, this actually first, this type of legislation uh, first took place in a little town of 1,600 people in Texas called Wascom, all right? The road to this Texas law that bans abortions in the state, Wascom, population 1600 is where it began. Now, what's funny about Wascom is this town of 1600, they don't have a Planned Parenthood clinic. But this novel legal approach that was used by Wascom, which is, it's a little border town. It borders, uh, it's right there next to Louisiana. Well, they're the ones who passed this ordinance that shielded Wascom from lawsuits, right? 
by saying city officials can't enforce the abortion ban. So it's kind of a funny thing, right? This law is not is telling officials, the, the attorney for the state, the lawyers, whatever, you cannot enforce the abortion ban. And because they're not enforcing the abortion ban, that can't be stopped by Planned Parenthood in the cases they bring. Because usually, right, you know, when, when, when the, the enforcement of abortion bans are left to these officials, right, the case will be this person versus, and it's the district attorney, this person versus the state attorney. Well, no such case here. But even though this was kind of a symbolic law, because they didn't have a clinic for performing abortions in Wascom, population 1600, well, three dozen other cities or thereabouts in the state of Texas followed Wascom's lead right away. Lubbock, Texas. That is where, I don't know, I used to call it the STD capital of the world. I think that actually used to be true because Lubbock is where uh, Texas Tech University is. Well, anyway, Lubbock, they have a Planned Parenthood clinic. And guess what? They stopped performing abortions this year as a result of the passage of this. It worked, and that's what scared the left. And so again, just to, just, just to make the point and drive the point home again, Texas's law is unique. All right, It's unique because it prohibits state officials from enforcing the ban, and it does what Mitchell recommended. They're calling a private right of action. He called it private enforcement. Allowing anyone, even someone outside of Texas, a citizen, to sue abortion providers and anyone else who helps someone get an abortion. And so I just want to finish up with this particular cranial exercise to make sure everything's understood. Mitchell wrote a couple of years ago, I believe it was, he came up with the idea of how to circumvent this court system that we have in America today, which allows one judge to interfere with and have this non-constitutional, unconstitutional veto power over legislation. So the legislature, right, what Texas did, the state legislature, they can induce compliance with its statutes by providing for private enforcement through civil lawsuits. These mechanisms are especially powerful, Mitchell wrote, because they enable private litigants to enforce a statute even after a federal, federal district court has enjoined the executive from enforcing it. So let me explain it this way, which Mitchell does a great job of, of making clear. Let's say a dist district court, all right? Well, they declare a statute unconstitutional. All right, just like we've talked about in these other states that have tried to do the same thing. Well, their decision only binds to the named defendants. So it doesn't have any precedent, no value in other court proceedings. So it doesn't stop them from taking place. You can keep flooding them. You can keep suing. It doesn't stop them across the board in the state. So that statute continues to exist. It has not been struck down. And so private litigants, citizens they're still free to bring their own enforcement actions in a state or federal court. And let's say the district court's ruling. Well, they confirm the federal court of appeals ruling. Well, that holding binds only the federal courts in that circuit. It doesn't control the state judiciary. 
And so private litigants then, they're still free to continue enforcing the statute in state court proceedings. So they can't put a full stop to this like they've done time and time again. These lawsuits will come up, and so these people are always fearful. They're not protected by judges anymore. They don't have de facto protection. And so at any point, if they violate the statute, they could find themselves in court, could find themselves paying legal fees, could find them losing. And so there are finally repercussions. They're not shielded. So the point is, unless the Supreme Court of the United States declares a statute unconstitutional, the state remains free to authorize and entertain private enforcement actions in their own courts. And this is what has the left going insane, because the Supreme Court did not rule this legislation in Texas unconstitutional. And in fact, it's very constitutional. I, I'm going to go and left field here, not left field in a way that the left does because they, they speak nonsense, but just a different direction with another example. You know, the issue with gay marriage, for example, the problem with that is not, I, I don't care if you're gay and you get married. It doesn't bother me personally at all. But the problem is marriage is not a constitutional right. It's a decision that's made by cultures, civilizations, based on their reflected values at the time. And so those can change and evolve over time. And so laws are passed in individual cities, counties, and states to change that, to define what marriage means. There's not a constitutional right for straight marriage or gay marriage. Okay? And so for the Supreme Court to interfere and declare that gay individuals have a constitutional right to marriage, it's not true. It's unconstitutional. And the point is, this can come up in a lot of other ways. Because society must make its own decisions about what the culture is. Why is polygamy banned? But gay marriage is the law of the land. Both are... Well, they're deviant in the sense that they, they, they move away from what traditional marriage is defined as. But if gay marriage is okay, why can't you be married to five or six different women? It doesn't add up. There's no constitutional right for any of this. And so the, the Supreme Court, if polygamists had a, a big enough um, quorum, a big enough uh, activist group that was saying, no, 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 it's, it's, it's our constitutional right to, be, to have three or four or five uh, wives. Well, they could go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court could say, okay, yeah, you have a constitutional right. All 50 states now have to allow polygamy. I'm not making a moral argument against anything in this particular case. I'm not expressing my opinion about morals and ethics. I'm just saying that as a constitutional measure, gay marriage, straight marriage, polygamy, none of those are protected rights in the Constitution. And states have the right to determine what that state looks like. And the problem is with this outrageous court and the way we view the court today, well, the Supreme Court is making law, changing law, enacting law, 
determining how the laws are going to be for all 50 states. And that's not how this country was, was organized. So anyway, that's the long and short of what's going on in Texas. Now, you can make arguments for it, against it, whatever else, but it's not unconstitutional. It's never been done before. It's novel. And the left hates it because we finally figured out a tactic that has, well, for a time, beaten them back. And Roe v. Wade is not, is, well, it's only the law of the land until the Supreme Court rules that it's not the law of the land. That's how this works. That's actually what's dangerous about this precedent. You know, states should be free to determine. If, you know, if California wants to, I mean, it's a moral issue there. But, you know, if they want to say, oh, um, you know, we can terminate and abort babies up to 30 seconds before they come out of the womb. You can shoot the baby when they come out of the womb. Whatever it is. At the end of the day, the baby's dead. Whether it's from a gun or because it's sucked out with a vacuum or whatever it is. It's a dead baby. We just lie to ourselves and tell us that it's not a child. But, you know, California can pass different laws than Texas can. But the left isn't content to win these uh, debates. They just want to use the judicial system and the Supreme Court to de facto force their sick culture, force it on all the citizens in this country. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think about the founding fathers and how brilliant they were, but, you know, ultimately they didn't give the, the Supreme Court veto power. Mitchell makes this point in his, his, uh, his piece, his long uh, essay. But they did argue about it, and many, founding, many of the framers, they, they suggested that the Supreme Court did have veto power. Ultimately, that's not what went in uh, the constitutional right. It is a constitutional right and the purpose of, of the judiciary and the Supreme Court. But they did argue that. And the biggest miscalculation they made was that somehow they didn't trust politicians, they didn't trust government, but somehow they trusted that judges, Supreme Court judges, were going to be outstanding moral individuals when they didn't trust anyone else in government. And that's the biggest flaw of the Constitution, is trusting these, well, I mean, their appointments and their lifetime appointments. No one else has that right. They have to be elected. But a Supreme Court justice, once they're, um, they're confirmed, they're on there for life or until they retire. And, of course, they thought they were, they were shielding them from political pressure. But all they did was ensure that if an amoral person was put on the court, well, there would be no pressure at all to do anything. They were free to be activists and so on and so forth. And that's the greatest flaw of our system. It's the judiciary system above all else. Uh, but this is Drew Allen, and we will be right back. It's certainly unusual for me. This is Drew Allen back with you. It's certainly unusual for me to dedicate an entire episode to one particular issue. But I've made the determination that this is very, very important. Uh, because this isn't going to go away. There's a lot of what the left would call misinformation out there from the left about this. 
And there are people even on the Republican side who are scared of this and what Texas has done and passed because it's unprecedented. And uh, my buddy, Alan Dershowitz, who I like to fight with and disagree with uh, publicly in my articles, well, of course, he's out there saying this is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional because why, Alan? Because it's novel. Uh, You know, Alan Dershowitz, for a moment, for a moment, I thought maybe he was a sane, non-activist judge when he came out against Trump's impeachment because he didn't believe it was on constitutional grounds. I I am certain that he read my article, by the way, in which I called um, him full of crap about his argument against impeaching Biden and uh, equating Trump's impeachment with the possible impeachment of Biden. But uh, he's proven himself and he's come out and he's made it very clear in a recent article that he's just a leftist. He's a liberal. He's all pro-choice. He's all pro-abortion. And so uh, he's a constitutional uh, liar, frankly. These people um, get degrees from Harvard or wherever they go in constitutional law, and then they use that degree to shroud every decision they make. It's like, it's like a preacher, a preacher who studied the Bible, then feels free to misinterpret the Bible. And that's what Alan Dershowitz uh, has been reduced to. I, I have very little respect left for Alan Dershowitz at this point, honestly. Uh, he's a hack, um, and uh, he cares nothing for America. He is guilty of exactly what Mitchell has accused the judiciary of becoming misinterpreting. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, because, you know, Dershowitz, for example, would say, well, you know, decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, well, you know, stare decisis, let the decision stand. You know, it's precedent, so it can't be overturned. No, it's, it, that's so foolish, because as Mitchell rightly points out, you know, contrary to popular opinion, Well, decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court are often reversed. They're not prevented from reversal just because a prior Supreme Court makeup has a different constitutional interpretation or, frankly, unconstitutional interpretation, and it's determined later to be flawed, and that's the case with Roe v. Wade. It's constitutionally flawed regardless of where you stand on it. And I think it's so fascinating my friends, that the left, you know, here they are defending something that is not in the Constitution, claiming it's a constitutional right. Meanwhile, things like free speech, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, well, they don't see any constitutional reason for that existence, even though it's written in plain ink. It can't even be misinterpreted. The right to free speech. Now they want to silence voices because they say it's dangerous misinformation. They want to come up after the Second Amendment. They don't want to go through constitutional means, by the way. They don't want to amend the Constitution because that's what will be required to get rid of our guns. No, they just, they just come at it because they don't like it. And we know the reason they, 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 they don't like it is because it stands in the way of their totalitarian dominance when you have a, well, a country of armed civilians. Otherwise, we become like Australia. And so it's just a fascinating thing to me. 
And, you know, Reagan said something that I think was most interesting and poignant about abortion. He said, uh, I'm paraphrasing probably, but he said, you know, I've noticed that everyone in favor of abortion has already been born. Is that not the truth? And my problem with the abortion thing, time and time again, that, you know, the left used to be relatively sane and rational. Relatively, okay. I mean, it's a, it is what it is. But, you know, they used to say that abortion should be extremely rare, legal, and safe. But now they want them to be federally funded, they want them to be often and frequent, and they want them to be encouraged. And, you know, it's amazing if you, if you, you know, a PETA advocate on the left, some animal rights activist, can you imagine if you filmed yourself, for example, uh, picking up a bird's egg from a nest and crushing it beneath your foot? They would lose their minds. They wouldn't tolerate for a second in the argument that, well, you know, it was just like an embryo in there. It was a, it, the bird wasn't fully hatched yet. It hadn't come out of the egg. It wasn't alive anyway. No, they would say, you killed an innocent uh, an innocent uh, future, you know, a, a bird's life. And yet when it comes to human beings, well, they go and ask doctors, and they try and debate when it's actually viable, when it's alive, when it can be aborted, when it can't be aborted. aborted. And they say, you know, a woman's right to choose. Well, a woman can choose to use contraceptives. A woman can, can choose not to have sex. A woman can choose not to act irresponsibly. And, of course, the responsibility is not solely on the woman because it takes a man, even though the left, I know they, they, they call them birthing persons, but um, unfortunately, um, no transgendered sex change operation can make a man get pregnant. And so a woman does have a right to choose, just like we have many decisions to make. But when it comes to abortion, the sanctity of human life, the thing that should be defended above all else, well, they want no consequences whatsoever, no repercussions. I mean, we don't make that argument when it comes to uh, murder, when it comes to drunk driving, when it comes to you know various other things. There are consequences to prevent that type of behavior. It's not your right to choose to drive drunk. It's not your right to choose to kill somebody who's out of the womb already. No, there are laws against that. What, are we going to have a Supreme Court rule that you can drive drunk? I mean, that's someone else's life at risk on the road in addition to yours. You don't say, oh, well, you know, it's... it's I, I, I mean, the point is the consequences and repercussions. They don't want there to be any. I mean, we have contraceptives. We have condoms. We have birth control. There are a million different ways not to get pregnant, including not having sex, not behaving irresponsibly. So, yeah, that is a woman and a man's right to choose. But to argue that, you know, once the sperm enters the egg, and then all of a sudden you have an a unborn child incubating in the womb, saying that's not a child or arguing that it's not a child until six weeks, it's not a child. No, it's, it's a child because the act of having sex, sorry, I know that's how it happens for the left. Yeah, a man and a woman have to have sex. 
And only then can a child uh, come to life. Can new life be created? And so people argue, well, they don't want to be inconvenienced. They're not ready to have a baby. Well, it's not inevitable that you get pregnant. A woman doesn't just... Not everybody's Mother Mary, okay? There's only one Jesus Christ. (laughs) Okay? And none of these other women are walking around as, like, Mary. With a... Just, you know, a baby just... Coming into her womb from God, okay? That's not how it works. And so we shouldn't be encouraging people to act irresponsibly any more than we should encourage them to drive drunk or do other things that are unlawful. And that's really what the argument stems to with abortion. You know, we want to tell women and our children and everyone else, yeah, live a life free free of responsibility. Go and have sex with as many people as you want. Don't use protection. And then, you know, if you get pregnant, so what? We'll just kill it. We'll just have an abortion. I understand that accidents happen. But we're not living in a, so- in a society that condemns it, that tries to encourage people not to put themselves in those situations. We're telling them you have a constitutional right to kill a baby if you make poor decisions that lead to pregnancy. That's not a society that any of us want to live in. But that's the reality, and that's what we have to confront. But unfortunately, it's become this political movement in which women, even conservative women, people on the right, Republicans, they also say, oh, yeah, it's like, you know, a woman's right. I believe in abortion. Everyone should have the right to abortion. No, everyone shouldn't have the right to abortion. Everyone has a right to choose and make decisions about how they live their own lives, but if you make poor decisions, there are consequences. And again, abortion's not the only alternative. If your argument is that, you know, oh, that baby's going to be born into poverty or whatever, adoption, put it up for adoption. We 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 can put money into that system. There are so many people out there who are begging and dying, who can't get, not dying, begging and They want a child more than anything else in this world. They want to be parents, but they can't get pregnant. And that's just just the situation that they're in, genetically or whatever else. And so there are people that want to adopt. There are people that will adopt. And that's a very easy solution. All right? If If you choose to act a certain way and get pregnant, well, you carry that baby to term. And you, you put it up for adoption. I'd much rather financially incentivize putting up a child for adoption than killing it in the womb. Whether it's financial incentive. Look, I'm not creating some legislation right now. I'm just talking this through with you. But if the argument is that, you know, this is an inconvenience for my life, Well, you put yourself in that situation to begin with, so that's on you. Accept some responsibility. But then if you don't feel like you're ready to raise a child, there are other people who are willing to adopt a child. And so I would would rather encourage individuals to carry that baby to term and put it in a home that's going to love it instead of killing it. Killing it. 
Everyone out there listening to me right now was not aborted. And it's so funny, you know, the argument with the left too, you know, men, they don't get pregnant, so they don't have a decision. They can't talk about this. It's the woman's choice. (laughs) Well, why do any of you, why does any American who's been born have a voice about abortion when they've never been aborted? We live in insane times, backwards, backwards, backwards. But the point is, you know, this movement on the left is, is trying to make abortion something that is encouraged and something that's accepted in society. It shouldn't be. Any more than alcoholism should be or anything else. Yeah, I understand it's going to happen. But you don't tell someone who drinks a handle of vodka every night, well, that's, that's okay, that's your choice. No, you say, you're making really foolish decisions. And you accept the, the consequences of that. You either change your behavior or you're going to die of a cirrhosis of the liver or whatever else. I want to live in a society that believes and embraces the sanctity and respects the sanctity of human life. There are countless examples of individuals who were born into certain situations Certainly not the best, but they weren't aborted, and they've gone on to do great things. But just because a child hasn't been born doesn't mean it doesn't have any rights. And so this is an important moral argument because it cascades down and affects everything else. Because if you don't respect the sanctity of human life, I mean, what can you respect? But anyway, I hope this has been very fruitful. I hope you've learned things. Look, if you have outstanding questions, I did not address every single issue because it gets, it could go on and on. But I want to encourage you, email me at email at drewthomasallen.com or also, honestly, still the best way, the, the best place to subscribe uh, so that you get, you know, the articles I write for these different publications or podcasts or interviews I do, uh, you know, seven or eight radio interviews a week, sometimes TV uh, drewallen.substack.com. It's free. It's just a su- subscription service. You can contact me through that. You can t- contact me through the email I provided, or you can send me a message uh, at drewthomasallen.com. Okay. But anyway, uh, I'm going to get back to you later this week for sure. I hope you have an awesome Labor Day, an awesome Monday, as the left would say, uh, enjoy your long weekend. But of course, Labor Day, by the way, is, is a day that is dedicated to um, acknowledging the hard work and achievements of American workers. And, of course, under this present administration, uh, there are too many Americans that are still unemployed. Um, but you and I, we're all working to uh, continue to move this country forward, uh, continuing to uh, contribute to the economy and to our fellow man and pay our taxes. And... Um, <laughs> the battle rages on, folks. But I want to thank you for listening. And um, God bless you all. And until next time, this is Drew Allen.